All right, well, let's open our Bibles to the Old Testament. We want to spend four weeks together in the book of Habakkuk. It's a, a little prophet, a minor prophet. I don't know how tall he was, but he was, it's a minor prophet. And, and I, when I was in Bible college, you know, I thought, well, what's the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet? Well, basically, it's the size of the book. So it's the little books that are called the minor prophets. Uh, not because their message is minor, but because they're probably harder to find in your Bible. Um, so I, I'm not sure if you found it yet. It's not an easy one to find. Uh, and if you're like me and you were saved later in life, you don't, you never learned that song, you know, Nahum, uh, how does that go again? Jonah, Mike, uh, Nahum, Habakkuk. That means nothing to most of you. Okay. All right. Well, it helped me at the age of 19, you know, when I finally learned it. But anyway, um, have I given you enough time to find it? Okay, well, there is a table of contents in your Bible also. Uh, if you have never used it, you can use that. And you can find this little book called Habakkuk. Let me read the first four verses, and then we'll dive in. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord... How long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. How long, O Lord? How long will evil triumph over good? How long will the wicked prosper? How long will good be called evil and evil be called Good. These questions are not new to those who follow the Lord. True people of God care about the spiritual condition of the society they live in and they voice their grief. As the world celebrates June as Pride Month, those who know the Lord and follow his word, grieve. We grieve not because we are better than any other person. We grieve not because our sin is somehow more righteous than other people's sin of whatever stripe you want to label. We are all sinners, every one of us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, Every one of us is just as guilty before a holy God. And the minute you start to look down your self-righteous nose at other people because you don't sin in the way that they sin, you have lost sight of the cross. You have lost sight of the fact that Jesus came not for the righteous, but to save sinners and all of us are there. Not a single person 
is morally pure by God's standard. We grieve because we know from history that walking away from God's original design only brings pain and suffering into people's lives. God's law is good. And a society experiences the degree of blessing that comes along with following God's law. Our hearts are heavy because we know that sexual perversions are not the cause of moral decline in our world, but the symptom of something more serious. The apostle describes this in the first chapter of the book of Romans. That is, that scripture teaches that the cultural takeover of the sexual revolution is a symptom that God has turned away from us. That as a society, God is giving us over to ourselves. So look not at other sinners and blame them and think that they are the cause of what is going on in the world. Understand, according to Romans 1, that when God, over the course of time, is no longer acknowledged as God and worshipped as God, as the creator that he is, as the holy God who alone deserves our worship. As that happens over the course of a period of time, God eventually says, that's the way you want it, that's the way you will have it. And he gives us up. He gives a culture up to what they want. He's giving us over as a society to a depraved mind. That's what Scripture says. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung says it well in a recent article. He says, quote, As effective as this marketing coup has been, Pride Month serves as a reminder that there are behaviors and desires about which we should not be proud As fallen human beings, we are more rationalizing than rational. We know how to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If we deceive ourselves long enough, two generations will probably do it. God threatens to withdraw his restraining mercy and give us up to dishonorable passions. And this includes women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and men committing shameless acts with men. The punishment for these and other sins is sometimes death, not only for those who do them, but for all who approve of those who practice them. Some deeds done in secret are too shameful even to speak aloud. Ephesians 5.12 The ubiquitous pride parade may not be a march toward cultural suicide as much as it is a sign that we are already dead. And so as we look at 
the society in which we live, we must understand how important it is that we hold forth the word of life in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we maintain our allegiance to the scripture, but do it in such a way that comes from a posture of humility, recognizing that all of us are worthy of eternal judgment. And we must give the message of hope that Jesus came not to save righteous people. He came to save sinners, of which every one of us should look in the mirror and say, I am the worst sinner that I know. So to grieve over sin is something that comes along with what it means to walk with God in truth and unrighteousness and righteousness, excuse me. We, we grieve unrighteousness, and lament is a just response. Others in the Bible had similar questions as Habakkuk. David, for example, in Psalm 13 said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? Psalm eighty-nine, forty-six. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Psalm 94, 3. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? We live in a fallen world where sometimes it seems that evil is an unrestrained power. And we ask, how long, Lord? How long will rebellion against your ways continue? How long will the darkness of sin appear to eclipse the sun of righteousness? How long can your patience endure Oh God. Habakkuk lived in a time like that. He lived in a time of evil. His name means embrace or wrestle. And by embracing God's calling as a prophet, this man wrestled with the apparent inconsistency of the holy God. How can God be holy? when he uses wicked nations, and we'll get to that specifically next week, to accomplish his purposes, specifically to judge his own people. It seemed to Habakkuk that God was patiently tolerating wickedness and not even noticing it. But what he didn't yet understand, and we'll understand next week, is that God was busy behind the scenes raising up an enemy to judge his people, to bring them to repentance. And this was a heavy burden for Habakkuk to bear. And that's why in verse 1 it says the oracle or the burden could be translated. The burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This oracle, this message from God to this prophet was given with the responsibility 
to communicate it. And it was heavy because it predicted the judgment that God was about to bring upon Judah. And this, coupled with the prophet's love for his people, became a heavy burden that he carried on his heart. Richard DeHaan, one of the early leaders of the radio Bible class, said this, Habakkuk was not a self-centered person concerned only with the comfort and safety of himself and his family. As a true patriot, he was deeply distressed by the moral and spiritual conditions about him. He loved his nation and knew it was moving ever closer to the precipice of destruction by continuing to break the laws of God. Therefore, two anguished questions burst forth from his lips. How long and why? Those are questions we'll look at as we go through the book together. Habakkuk prophesied for about six years. It was after 612 B.C., which marked the fall of Nineveh because Assyria was no longer a threat at this time. But it was before 606 when the Chaldeans uh, prophesied that they, it was prophesied that they would come into power as God's instrument of judgment. And Habakkuk certainly felt alone, but he wasn't alone. He had contemporaries like Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Zephaniah. All of them were prophesying for God, being mouthpieces of God at the same time. For example, Jeremiah wrote of the burden that he carried. He says, For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. The message that he carried on his heart that was to be on his lips as the mouthpiece of God was such a heavy burden. See, when God raises a man to deliver his message, that message becomes a burden that he must carry until the time that he delivers it. Like the ring of power was a burden only Frodo could bear, so the message given to Habakkuk was a heavy weight that only the prophet could carry. No one else could carry it for him. It was God's call that he be the one to carry this message. And it is this mental burden that Habakkuk now puts down on paper. His book is basically an attempt to wrestle through the the apparent contradiction of the holiness of God and the problem of evil. And there's much that we will learn together about the character of God and how God, in his mysterious sovereignty, maintains his integrity and his holiness and yet works in the midst of a sinful world to accomplish his redemptive purposes. When you know the deep contrast between God's law and the unrighteousness of sin, that becomes a burden for righteous people to bear. 
So this morning we hear the prophet's lament in verses 2, 3, and 4. You might say, well, what's a lament? Well, a lament is a biblical prayer of grief, is basically what a lament is. A lament is an expression of grief and sorrow to God. To, to lament is to put verbal expression to the inner pain that consumes you. A lament is a complaint to God, but not about God. God is righteous. We ought never to complain about him. But he invites us in his word to complain to him. That is, to bring our just complaints and the inner struggles we have with what we see going on, to bring those to him, to voice them to him, not to keep it all shut up inside as if we're strong enough to carry these burdens. We're not. So lament is an act of faith. When our heart is grieved by the pain that we experience in our own lives in this broken world, we give voice to our sorrow by crying out to God. When our spirit is vexed by wickedness and the ways that sin harms people's souls and our relationships, we cry out to God. We say, why, God, how long, God, will you not intervene? We cry out to him in lament. Lament is an act of faith when it drives us to the only source of hope. When it drives us to the only one who really has answers. See, we complain to God ultimately because we know he is our only help and he is our only hope. Habakkuk's lament urges us to remember three biblical truths while we lament the state of our world. Number one, as you lament sin, violence, and injustice, remember the plan of God is larger in scope than we know. The plan of God is much larger in scope than we know. Now, this might come as a disappointment to you, but I have to say it. The Bible isn't about you. Okay? It's not all about you. It's all about God. And it's all about God's mercy in redeeming sinners like you and like me. And that's where we come into the picture. But God has a much bigger plan that he is accomplishing. Verse 2, the prophet says, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Lord, there is the covenant name for God. And so what Habakkuk is doing is reminding himself and in prayer reminding God that he believes that God will keep his covenant He's reminding God of his covenant promise to Judah. Now, God doesn't need anyone to remind him, obviously, but he's reminding him because this is his way of lamenting to God. God, you made a promise that through Judah, 
you would send the Redeemer. And now look what a mess Judah is. How is it possible that you, a faithful God, could bring about your promise through such unfaithful people? And yet that is exactly the way the Lord works. Jeremiah, a contemporary of Habakkuk, struggled against the same evils in Judah after all that God had done for them. He says in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The prophet's saying, What was wrong with God that you turned away from him? Obvious answer is nothing. Nothing was wrong with God. The wrong was totally in the heart of sinful man. There had been some hope in those days. For example, the righteous king Josiah, who reigned for 32 years, he had instituted many spiritual reforms. He repaired the temple. He reinstated the public reading of Scripture to God's people. He led Judah to make a covenant of obedience with the Lord. He kept the Passover just as the law prescribed. He tore down the altars to the golden calf and burned the bones of the priests and so on. He purged the land. But those reforms did not last, unfortunately. The second son of Josiah, Jehoiakim, did evil in the Lord's sight. And so the successor to the righteous Josiah was an unrighteous king. And as a result, the progress made toward righteousness did not stick. And Judah remained in ongoing, unrepentant sin. And so God revealed to Jeremiah that he would send the invading armies of Babylon to capture and enslave them. And that's exactly what he did. King Nebuchadnezzar came and arrested Jehoiakim and took him locked up in chains away to Babylon. And the people later followed because that was God's plan. Like Jeremiah, who often felt alone in a world of wickedness, Habakkuk was confused and frustrated because it seemed that God did not hear him. God did not appear to be answering his prayers, but God did hear him. And he was about to answer. In fact, God had already begun to answer his prayers, but the prophet couldn't see it yet. And so as he was looking at his society, all he could see was the bleak picture of corruption. He saw nothing positive. 
only the negative. All he could see was destruction and violence and strife and conflict. But God had a plan. Look at verse 5. God answers Habakkuk's question. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That is remarkable. God always has a bigger plan than what we can see. And even in the midst of a culture that seems to be completely going down the tubes, God is up to something. He is up to something really good. And Habakkuk needed to trust God that through the chastisement of his people, sin would not go unpunished and his redemptive purpose would move forward. Evildoers will be judged but God's plan will move on. And we need to have that perspective when we lament the moral condition of our society and the spiritual decline in churches that once believed the Bible. We need to remember that God is up to something. He is always working behind the scenes. He's always working to accomplish his redemptive purposes. He is chastening his people. He is refining his church. The Spirit of God is moving through the Word. Revival is coming. It is coming. But it has to get really dark first for the light to make a difference, for us to even see the light. The plan of God is larger than we know, so much larger. We need to walk by faith and not by sight and not be given over to fear, for we serve a victor, and in him, we are overcomers. Do you believe this? There's a second truth to remember when we lament. As you lament sin, violence, and injustice, remember this. The patience of God is long as he waits for sinners to repent. Habakkuk is perplexed but he's also just really tired. He says in verse 3, you know, why do I have to look at sin and how it impacts those around me? Why do I have to carry this burden? Why do you make me see iniquity? Verse 3. And why do you idly look at wrong? Why, why, why does it appear, God, that you're just sitting there doing nothing? Destruction, violence, strife, contention. They're all rising. Why does he have to look at this, he says? Why, why does he have to witness such violence and strife? And, and why can't he just preach to people who always obey the Lord? Why can't he just escape into a world of peace where all is well? 
You wish that at times, don't you? We all do. Let's be honest. But the prophet is forgetting something really important. He's forgetting the patience of God. And, and we do that as well. We forget the patience that God had toward us before we repented and turned to Jesus. We forget the spiritual blindness that once kept us imprisoned to the flesh. But we need to remember that it is the patience and kindness of God that lead us to repentance. Let us never forget that. Jesus is coming again, but God is being patient with our world. Second Peter 3.9, in response to those who were mocking the promise of the return of the Lord, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the mercy of God toward us as sinners is so great that he gives us more and more time to repent, to turn from our sins, to turn to Jesus, who alone rescues us and forgives us and brings us into the family of God. We need to understand that the darker the world becomes, the brighter the light of Christ. And that light of Christ is to shine through those who know him. So be glad that God is more patient than you are. Be thankful for that. There's a third truth to remember. As you lament sin, violence, and injustice, remember this. The power of God's word is diminished when it is disregarded. Now, this is really a warning. Look at verse 4. So the law is paralyzed. The law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The prophet says, the word of God has no effect on his people. It's not honored in places where laws are made. And so the wicked surround the righteous. It's, it's not honored in the judicial system of the land. And so what gets called justice isn't actually justice in God's sight. So when the word of God is discarded or disregarded or disrespected, it appears to be powerless. But when it is honored and when it is lifted up, when it is regarded as what it is, it has great power to change people's lives. It has great power to change us from the inside out. 
A century before Habakkuk's ministry, the voice of the Lord spoke through Isaiah, who was tasked with confronting Judah for her disobedience and rebellion against God. Listen to what he says in the beginning of his prophecy. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people, do not understand. Oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Now, that passage is both a warning and encouragement to us. It's a warning in that this is what happens when the word of God is not regarded, when it is not honored. But it's an encouragement to those of us who are parents. We have children, and maybe some know the Lord and some don't, and, and, we, and we have this innate sinful way of making it about us and thinking that somehow it's all on us. In other words, how our children respond to God and his word is somehow all on us. and That's just not the way it is. I mean, what is Isaiah saying? What is God saying? Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. There's only one sinless, perfect father, God. And according to the prophet Isaiah, He has a lot of rebellious children who need to be redeemed, who need to be saved by the mercy and grace of Christ. And so let us, as parents, be warned and take seriously the priority of God's word in leading our homes. But let us take comfort in knowing that at the root of, of every sinner's problem is a heart that has to be redeemed. And it has to be redeemed supernaturally. And you, Dad, don't have the power to do that. And you, Mom, don't have the power to do that. And you, Grandpa and Grandma, don't have the power to do that. But God does. And so we pray, and we teach, and we pray, and we teach, and we wait for God to do his merciful work. It was a deplorable state that Judah was in because they rejected the word. And even Jeremiah says it's because the leaders rejected the word. The very priests of God's people didn't even know God and did not faithfully teach his word. And the same is true today. Many churches that once held to the unchanging truth of God's word have caved into cultural pressures. And instead of holding forth the truth of the gospel for all kinds of sinners, they hang rainbow flags on their buildings to let the world know that they are not so narrow-minded as others are. 
And yet what hope is given when the light of truth is extinguished? There is no hope. We don't love sinners well when we tell them it's okay. God loves you any way that you are, and you don't have to change. But we love them well when we say to them, God loves every kind of sinner, and to prove it, he sent his only begotten son, who died in our place and rose from the dead to save us from any and every kind of sin. Come to this Jesus. Turn from your sin and come to this Jesus, and he will welcome you with open arms, and he will usher you into the very presence of God. I believe there is a revival coming. But as is true of all biblical revivals, it has to begin with God's people. It has to begin with the church. Are we ready for revival? That's a question we should ask ourselves. Are we ready for it? Are we willing to repent of our pride and our rebellion and our apathy, or are we just sitting around and waiting for the world to change first? Let us be warned, as Peter warned us, that judgment shall first come to the household of God. Revival isn't for unbelievers. Revival is for the church. That's what revival is, biblically. And so we must look to the Lord and look to him for hope, the hope that he promises in his word. So where have we been? Well, we've been in a number of different areas as we think about Habakkuk's lament. But just let me wrap it up for you this morning and and help you to see that when we look at the moral and the spiritual decline of society, it is tempting for us to allow that to cloud our view of God's sovereignty and the goodness of God's redemptive plan that he is accomplishing. Go back into the scriptures and read horrendous things like the book of Judges and see that even in a time like that, God was preserving his faithful remnant in order to bring about his plan. Read the the book of 1 Corinthians and understand that we live in a very Corinthian culture right now and know that the gospel was powerful to change people, to save from the inside out. If you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord, then let me tell you the best news ever, and that is that God loves sinners. God loves sinners of every kind. So much so that he sent Christ to save us, to rescue us. And if you will turn to him, Jesus will never cast you away. And if you do know the Lord this morning, but 
you have walked away from him and you are living in rebellion against his word, then you too need to repent. You need to return to the good path of following him and obeying his word. It's the only road that leads to blessing and to peace. Let's pray. Father, sometimes there are such heavy messages from your word that we are called to think about and to carry and, and to deliver to those who need to hear. And, and so, God, we just pray that we would learn to lament biblically, that we would take the pain and the sorrow and the anger that we sometimes feel inside of us and turn it into prayers of calling upon you, Lord, to do the work that only you can do. Oh, God, thank you for the promises of your word that you give example after example of when your word is lifted up and honored by your people, that you bring about sweeping revivals throughout lands when it looked oh so hopeless. Oh God, we pray that you would bring about a great revival. But honestly, Lord, we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, let it begin with me. Let it begin with our church. Let it begin with my heart. Let us stop looking at others and expecting them to change. Let us look into the mirror of your word, see our own sin, turn from it, repent, and look to Jesus anew as our soon and coming king. But, O oh Lord, before he returns, there is so much work to do. There are so many who need to hear the message of the gospel. So help us to be faithful. Give us the strength and the encouragement we need. In the name of Jesus, we pray.